Everyone, welcome to a Great Jewish Personalities. And our story today occurs, like last week, in one of the most volatile times in Jewish history. Like we mentioned, there was the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in the 120s and 130s. It was squashed really horrifically by the Romans. They instituted the Shemad, killing rabbis, assassinating rabbis, killing Rabbi Kiva. And we meet a small group of heroes, of students of Rabbi Akiva, that's begin the effort of rebuilding. So last week we spoke about Rabbi Shimon. Tonight we're going to discuss another prime student of Rabbi Akiva, whose name is Rabbi Meir. He's one of the core authors of the Mishnah. And in fact, when you see a Mishnah that's unattributed, it doesn't say Rabbi Akiva says, or Rabbi Tarfon says, or Rabbi Yossi says, it just says, this is the law. That is sourced from Rabbi Meir. When the groups of rabbis came back together and reestablished the yeshiva, was known as the Masifta, and they reestablished the Sanhedrin, Rabbi Meir was part of the triumvirate, the three leaders of the yeshiva, along with Rabbi Shomer Domlil and Rabbi Nassan, and he was called the Chacham. He was the wise person because he, above all, as we see uh, amongst other personalities of that time, he was about Torah and Torah only. And he leads a very enigmatic and colorful life. And unfortunately, he suffered tremendous hardship and tragedy. So I want to give a little background. Who was Rabbi Meir? Where did he come from? And what did he accomplish? And what were some of the stories uh, of his very interesting life and some of the personalities that he also had uh, accompanying him alongside? He, he's His wife is very interesting. His teachers are very interesting. Leads a very interesting life. So a little background. Uh, there's a couple of centuries where the Jews and the Romans live in very close proximity. And it's very interesting if you examine the big picture of how they affected each other and how they interrelated. But one legacy of that time is the tremendous influx of Jewish converts. When Rome was at its mightiest, they had this interaction with the Jewish people that affected the Romans and a very substantial way Jews, of course, as well unsurprisingly, that many great Jewish leaders of the time were either themselves converts, were descendants of converts, etc. So Robert Kiva, we spoke about a couple weeks ago, he was a descendant of converts, as is uh, today's personality, Rabbi Meir, he was also a descendant of converts. In fact, his father, we're told, uh, was a descendant of Nero, the Emperor Nero, his descendant was actually Rabbi Meir. And we also meet Unculus at this time. Unculus is the nephew of Titus. Titus, the Roman emperor who destroyed the temple, his nephew became Unculus, who converted to Judaism in a very fantastic story and went on to write the famous translation of Torah into Aramaic that we still have printed in our, in our Chumashim today. Now, Rabbi Meir himself really rises to prominence like Rabbi Shimon after the Holocaust or the first Holocaust. All the rabbis are killed. He's one of the five remaining students. And he was one of the five students that received rabbinic ordination along with Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Lazar under those very harsh conditions. He is a son-in-law of what's known as one of the ten martyrs. During this time, there were ten high-profile assassinations 
of rabbis of that era. Rabbi Kiva is one of them. We know that story. His father-in-law is the famous Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion was a tremendous scholar and leader, many, many teachings from him in the Torah, and his son was Rabbi Meir. But his story really, really gives us another window into what life was like when Rabbi Meir rose to prominence. Uh, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion defied the Roman restriction against Torah teaching. He taught Torah publicly, and they brought him in in front of the court. They said, why do you teach Torah, uh, why do you teach Torah publicly? He says, well, I'm not beholden to you. I'm subjugated to God. God says teach Torah. I teach Torah. I don't care what you say. So they say right away, we're going to burn you. We're going to kill your wife and your daughter, who's Romero's sister-in-law. Your daughter is going to be put in a house of harlots. So what do they do? Very, very tragic and sad story. They took Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. He was teaching Torah. They grabbed his Torah scroll. And they brought him to a center of town. They wrapped him with the Torah scroll around him. And they surrounded him with fire. They didn't put him on top of a pyre, like you would if you wanted to just burn someone. They surrounded him that he was inside of the fire, surrounded by a ring of fire. And they lit the fire, but they maintained the fire at a very low level, so that way he doesn't kill him right away. And not only that, they placed on his heart wool that was doused in water, to keep his heart cold, so to speak, and prolong his agony. Really, really sad, really brutal, really cruel, barbaric torture that the Romans did to Rebbe ben Tradion. And the stories that we learn about what happened at that time is really remarkable. For example, his daughter, we don't know which daughter it is, it might have been Romero's wife, it might have been Romero's sister-in-law. His daughter says to her father, all the students are there, all the family, everyone's there. Can you imagine seeing such a sight? Un- unimaginable. So his daughter says to him, I can't believe I'm seeing you like this. Can you imagine? It's hard. We can't even think about it. We don't want to think about it. You know, we're just reviled by the thought. And how, how could humans do that? How could humans descend to such cruelty? It's unimaginable. But she sees his father and she starts speaking to him. How can I see you suffering in such agony? And he tells her like this. Listen to what Rechanina ben Trajan tells his daughter. He says, if it was just me being burned, I'd be worried. But what the Romans do? They wrapped me in a Torah scroll. So they're torturing me, and they're destroying the Torah scroll. So I know if it was just me, who's to say that God minds? It's just another Jew. Maybe. But the Torah's being burned. They're making an affront against God. I know once God will have to stand up for the honor of Torah, maybe he'll do something about me as well. His students are there. They're watching him. And they say to him, what's going on? What are you experiencing? And he tells them very famous words. I see that the Torah scroll that they're enshrouding me with, the parchment is being burned. But the letters, they're flying up in the, in the, into heavens. The lesson is, of course, yeah, you could kill the rabbis, and you could beat down the Jews, and you could try to do terrible things. But the Torah itself, the, the beating heart of Jewish life, that is indestructible. And we see, and the story of Rabbi Meir is really the rebuilding of, this, uh, of these efforts. Either way, the story there ends that the Roman executioner is inspired by Rebbe ben Tradion's words, and he says to Rebbe ben Tradion, if I hasten your death and I minimize, I end your agony, can you guarantee me that I'll get a portion in Olam He says, yes, 
He raises the fire, pulls away the wool. Rabbi Hanina Betrayan dies immediately. The Roman executioner jumps into the fire himself. He dies, and a booming voice, a prophetic voice, is heard by all. Rabbi Hanina Betrayan and the executioner are welcomed to Olamaba. But this is where Rabbi Meir emerges, where rabbis are being publicly executed in really horrific ways. And the Talmud tells what happened with the daughter, the daughter of Rabbi Hanina Betrayan, Rameir's sister-in-law. So Romero's wife, her name is Bruria, and she's going to make uh, several appearances in our story. But she tells, now they took the daughter and they took her away with all the prostitutes. It's really sad, you know, the, the, the daughter of one of the most prestigious uh, religious families that's taken as a prostitute. It's really, it's unimaginable. What do you do? So Bruria, Romero's wife, tells him, I want you to go and ransom her, get her back. Right? It's, it's, she shouldn't be there. So he takes a bag of gold and he says like this, I'm going to go and try to save her. If she's sinning, she's not going to be saved. No miracles will happen to her. But if she's not sinning, then I'm confident that a miracle will happen. First he goes to her and he, he gets dressed up. She doesn't know who he is. And he goes and he prepositions her. He solicits her. And she says, well, I'm not feeling well. Well, it's the wrong time of the month. She's given all the excuses in the world. Why you want me? There's so many other more beautiful girls out there. And he sees that everyone who comes to her, she's just rebuffing. She's resisting. Obviously, her purity is intact. She's not sinning. So he goes out to the guard and says, okay, I have a better gold. There's one of your girls, one of your prisoners. I want to buy her. So the Roman says, well, what, is, you know, what are you going to do for me? You give me the better gold. Next day, they come and they count roll call and there's a girl missing and they'll blame me. So Ramirez says, well, bribe, I'll give you a lot of gold. Keep half for yourself and then bribe the other, you know, the next guy in line. He says, well, eventually, eventually I'll come back to bite me, right? Eventually I'll run out of the money and I'll be able to bribe everyone. What do I do then? So Ramirez says, I'll give you a solution. I'll teach you magic words. You free the girl I'll teach you my magic words. You say the magic words, and you're safe. What are the magic words? The God of Mayor, answer me. This, you're in trouble, you'll be saved. Magic words. How do I know that this is true? So he's pointed to some wild dogs. He says, those dogs, take them out of the cage. Take them out of the cage, and Ramir starts inciting them, and they start going after him, lunging, and they're about to grab him. He says, And they just stop and slip away. <sighs> Magic words. He agrees. And, uh, and they gives him the money. He takes the girl. The girl's saved. That's the story. What's the epilogue to the story? Eventually, the Romans, the hierarchy, uh, the chain of command, they go and they, where's the missing girl? And eventually, they take this guy and they start to try to execute him. He says, God of Mary, answer me. And miraculously, he's saved, and they're all flummoxed what happened. He tells them the whole story, and they put an edict out for the arrest of Rabbi Meir. And in fact, the Talmud describes that they took, they made like a wanted poster of Rabbi Meir. They etched his face on the doorways, on the gateways to Rome. Anyone sees this man, bring him in. When Rabbi Meir found out that they were trying to kill him, he escaped to Babylon. That's the end of the story. One of the nicknames of Rabbi Meir is Rabbi Meir Baal Hanes, Rabbi Meir, the master of the miracle, because he did this miracle. And in fact, there's actually a, a famous charity that was, you know, founded 250 years ago called Rabbi Meir Baal Hanes, 
apparently you donate to this charity and you sail a cut and you're missing your iPod, you'll find it. Or if you need help finding a shidduch, you'll get it. It's a, it, it really works, apparently. <coughs> now, as was the case of the rabbis of his time, Rabbi Meir had a vocation. He was a scribe of unmatched still. Uh, there's several stories in the Talmud that they tell of how beautiful he would write and the things that he would do in his Torah strolls that he did. And in fact, there's even a story once that they were traveling in Asia, somewhere in Asia probably. Probably was Asia Minor. And it was Purim. And they happened to have not had a Megillah. They want to fulfill the mitzvah of reading the Megillah and Purim. No one had a Megillah, but they had Rabbi Meir. So Rabbi Meir sat down, and from his memory, just wrote down the whole Megillah from beginning to end. You know, all ten chapters, word after word. You know, he had such command of Tanakh, of Jewish Bible, he could just spit it off by heart. And indeed, he was a very skilled scribe, but his impact that he had in his scholarship far outweighed uh, whatever he had in, in, in being a great scribe. For example, if you look at the Talmud, there's thousands of rabbis cited. Myriads of laws, 63 books of Mishnah. It's a very vast corpus of information. Of the thousands upon thousands of rabbis cited, Rabbi Meir is the third most oft-cited rabbi. He's, a, he, you know, he's one of the foundational rabbis in authoring and compiling the Mishnah. Now, whenever there's a debate in the Talmud, we always have to follow halacha. Halacha has to follow one of the opinions. So his contemporary said as follows. This is the statement, just to give a sense of the scope of scholarship of Rabbi Meir. This is what his contemporary said about him. They said, it's known before he who created the world, i.e. God knows, that in Rabbi Meir's generation, there is no one as great as him in scholarship. However, if so, why does the halacha not follow Rabbi Meir? So why do they not establish halacha like him? Because his friends, his colleagues, could not fathom the depth of his reasoning. He was so much more advanced than the great geniuses who were his colleagues that they couldn't get it. He, he was more advanced than them, and he was talking to them in almost a different language. And gives an example. He would able he would be able to prove every, anything he wanted to be to prove. He had such a command of Torah. He would prove that something that's tummy, that's impure, is actually tahar, and bring 150 proofs to it, and vice versa. So they, they, had, they had no idea what to do with his Torah because it was so advanced. They couldn't follow halacha. The Talmud gives a description of what it was like to watch Rabbi Meir teach Torah and study Torah. Whoever saw, this is a quote from the, from the Talmud in Sanhedrin, whoever saw Rabbi Meir in the base Medrash, in the house of scholarship, he looked like he was uprooting tall mountains and grinding them into each other. Which is a, is a nice description the Talmud gives, right? He's able to uncover any depths and even the most vastly complex concepts, able to grind them to a fine powder. To, to, to simplify it, to understand it, to break it down to all its various little parts. The Gemara says that he would give frequent lectures uh, at that time. All the rabbis did. That's what the rabbis did. They were all about teaching Torah to the masses. Rabbi Shimon indeed spent his time in the cave. But there's the other element of teaching Torah to everyone, especially at a time of such grave need for Torah dissemination. And the Talmud would describe that he would begin his lecture with a third of it would be dedicated to halacha, a third of it would be dedicated to agadata, to Jewish philosophy and ethics, and a third would be dedicated to parables. 
And the Talmud even says that he would have 300 parables regarding foxes. Now, if I told you today that we're going to go to yeshiva and the rabbi is going to teach us stories about foxes, you would say, that's not a yeshiva. Yeshiva is about Torah. you got to work hard. I, I think perhaps we could say what Omer did, he was able to you know, teach Torah at a very high level in halacha, but he also gave people the sense of, of ethics, of philosophy, of what we're here for, what, what's life all about. To not just be in the realm of Torah, but to also understand how it matters to you. And he was also able to capture people. He was a skilled teacher. Sometimes the people that are the most knowledgeable in a subject can't relate to the common folk. They can break it down to a way that people understand. Rabbi Meir, he would take his Torah and he was able to capture it in stories about parables about foxes. And everyone can understand a parable about a fox. And that way people were able to understand. He was able to, he was able to uh, battle with the titanic Talmudic scholars of his time and able to explain things to fifth graders as well. Now, he had legions upon legions of students and we find similar attributes amongst his students. The Talmud tells that Rebmer had one student whose name was Sumchas. And he would say on every matter of Tumah, of impurity, which are the most complex laws of the Torah, he'd bring... 48 reasons of, of impurity and, everything, and every matter of purity bring 48 matters, uh, 48 reasonings. There was such exhaustiveness, such overwhelming abundance of Torah even found by his students. Now his name, we call him Rabbi Meir, but the Talmud says that his name was actually not Meir. His name was Nahurai. So why they call him Meir? They called him Meir because the word Meir means bring light. Rabbi Meir was someone who illuminated his generation with Torah to such a degree that they actually renamed him. They're not calling him Nahorai, we're going to call him Meir because that's essentially what he did for the Jewish people. Now, he had a very tragic life, beginning with his teacher. His first Rebbe, his first teacher in Torah was someone by the name of Elisha ben Avuya. Elisha ben Avuya was one of the great rabbis of his time. But unfortunately, he flipped and became a heretic. This is something that we see very, very infrequently in Torah, where Torah giants can have a shift, negative shift, somewhere in the middle of their life. There's a story of Rabbi Yochanan, uh, who was the Kohen Gadol, was a high priest for 80 years, but then he became... A tzidoti became a Sadducee. But that's, that's the exception. In the entire history of the Talmudic and Mishnahic era, we find one individual who was a great scholar, a great teacher, who became a heretic. And his story is also a very interesting and disturbing story uh, because he was on par, he was Rabbi Meir's teacher. And he was on par with all the great rabbis of the time, Rabbi Akiva, the, the generation prior. Ben Azai, he was one of them, and then he went off. And why he went off is very, uh, it's a very interesting story. Several, several reasons given. So, for example, the Talmud tells in Chagiga that there's four people that entered the Pardes. And what this actually means, you have to ask someone who understands Kabbalah. But a Pardes means, it means an orchard, but it's referring to mystical aspects of the Torah. There's four people that immerse themselves in mystical aspects of the Torah, 
and each one of them had a different result. One of them was Rabbi Akiva, and he was the best. He went in peacefully, and he emerged peacefully. Nothing bad happened to him. The rest of them, terrible things happened to them. Elisha ben Avuya went in, and he became a heretic. What, what happened once he was in this orchard that made him become a heretic? So the Gemara says that he saw an angel sitting down. The halacha is angels are not allowed to sit down. Angels are always standing. God can sit down. Now, what does this mean? I don't know. But this is what the Gemara says. He saw an angel sitting down. And he said, wait a minute. If God's there, how can anyone sit down? And in his head, he created a, a, a heretical notion that there's maybe multiple powers above. And once he came to that conclusion, or at least he had that thought, he heard a voice that says, Acher had this heretical thought, he can never repent. And he was so shaken by what he heard that he said, I can never repent for what I did. Well, I have nothing to lose. I'll forever be a sinner. Might as well enjoy this world and stop living for Lamaba. And his whole life, he was, for the rest of his life, he was convinced that he can no longer repent. And as such, he decided to live a life of hedonism. That's the first reason why he went awry. Another reason uh, is brought down the Yerushalmi that there was a problem with the beginning of his introduction to Torah. The Talmud tells us of Elisha ben Avuya, Rumer's teacher, about his bris, his circumcision ceremony, when he was eight days old. All the rabbis were there. His father was a respectable leader. And Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer, two of the teachers of Rabbi Akiva, so this is going two generations back, they were also there. So all the people were there, all the aristocrats of the town, and also the rabbis. So the rabbis say to themselves, all the aristocrats that are sitting there eating and they're schmoozing and talking about their business, we should talk about our business as well. So they move off to the side and start discussing Torah. And they discuss in Torah with such depth and with such joy that a fire begins to engulf them, envelop them, surrounded by fire. So Elisha's, the baby's father, he's like, what's going on? I'm in my house. I invite the rabbis to come for the bris. And before you know it, the whole place is going to be on fire. Don't, don't break, don't destroy my house. So they tell him, no, you got it wrong. We're not going to destroy your house. What we're, what we're doing here is we're studying Torah the same way it was given at Sinai. And therefore we're recreating Sinai, so to speak. And just like Sinai, there was fire. So to hear this fire, Elisha's father gets so awakened and inspired by the story. He says, well, that's the power of Torah. I'm going to dedicate this baby if he has the capabilities to Torah. And indeed, this baby did have the capabilities. He became Elisha Benavuyu, one of the great rabbis. But the Talmud points out that his father designated him for life of Torah because he wanted the pomp and fanfare of fire. It wasn't, it wasn't based upon sincere desire to Torah. He wanted to see his kids studying Torah be able to do all these magic tricks. Because his beginning of Torah was a little bit tainted, therefore he was exposed to the possibility of going awry. And, you know, I have a personal story regarding this. Uh, my grandfather, he would say over the story that when he was a little boy, his mother would send him to go study Mishnah. There was a rabbi in town who would gather a bunch of kids and they would study Mishnah. And he remembers his mother sending him off and as he turns back and sees her, she's crying. 
and she's praying to the Almighty, let him grow in Torah. That's what, it, that's what we have to do. When we're starting a venture, and certainly a venture of Torah, we can't say, oh, I want my kid to study Torah, so he'll be a rabbi, and then I'll have nachas. Or he'll have fire. Whatever variety of, of insincere intentions and motivations that we could have. We have to do it with purity, and with integrity, and with intention, that he studies Torah, because that's what's right, and that's what the Almighty wants. Another reason given why Elisha ben went awry is that he witnessed an episode that was very disturbing to him philosophically and it caused him to go wrong. What happened? He saw a father tell a son, climb on the tree and get and fulfill the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird. And we know that those particular mitzvahs, honoring parents and sending away the mother bird, are both mitzvahs that the Torah says specifically, you'll live a long life. So the kid climbs up the tree. He's doing both of those things that are that the that the Torah foretells. You'll have a long life. As he's about to get there, he falls off the tree and dies. That's a philosophical problem. What's going on over here? He's doing both mitzvahs that we're told will grant him long life, and yet he dies? He couldn't answer that. And the last reason given is that during this first holocaust of Hadrian, he saw one of the great rabbis who was tortured in a horrific way. And he said, how is it possible that a rabbi who teaches Torah with such purity could have such a, such a legacy, such a result? Regardless, he was convinced, whatever, whatever set him off, maybe it was a, probably was a, it was, you know, it was a combination of these reasons. He went awry and he disavowed Torah and he believed he couldn't possibly repent. And thus, he was given the nickname Acher. Acher means someone else. How did he get that nickname? So Talmud tells us that he decided that he's, that's it, he's giving up Torah and going to live a, live a life of hedonism, and that was a Shabbos. So, it's unimaginable to us, but the big rabbi going on Shabbos to disavow his Judaism, it's really sad to think about it. So the first thing he did, he goes and solicits a prostitute. And she's flummoxed by what she sees. The great rabbi is coming to ask her for her services. Very strange. She says, wait a minute. Aren't you the famous Rabbi Elisha ben Avuya, the famous rabbi who teaches all the Torah, Rabbi Meir's teacher? Aren't you that person? So he goes and reaches to the ground, takes a flower on Shabbos, plucks it out of the ground, and says, oh. she says, oh, you must be Acher. You must be someone else. And therefore, the moment he went, he went awry, he went off, so to speak. You know, she, he, she was, he was nicknamed by a prostitute, which is, you know, uh, you know it's not the best compliment in the, in the world. And that's how he's known in the Torah. And this, you know, if you think about it, Rabbi Meir himself, like his teacher who taught him his Torah, is now a heretic. It, it's really sad to think. And his whole life, you know, he, his Torah, you know, got his start from Elisha ben Avuyu, who became Acher. And now he went awry, so he's, the whole life he's trying to get him to repent. Not only that, he continues to study Torah by him. The Gemara says, well, all the people, all the, his colleagues are going over to Rabbi Meir. How do you study Torah from such a man? He gives him a few examples. He says, well, Rabbi Meir, he found a pomegranate, and he threw away the peel and kept the fruit. It means, Acher was a mixed bag. He had 
the peel, so to speak, which is his problems, which he which Romer discarded. Yet, his Torah was still pure. Another example Romer gives, he says, a Torah scholar is like a nut. It's like a nut. And what happens if you have a nut? But unfortunately, it gets, uh, it's rolling around in the mud. You clean off the mud. You don't look at the problematic parts of it, and you take just what it's worth. Gemara says some interesting stories. Romer is studying Torah from Acher, and it's Shabbos. And Acher is dry, riding his horse in Shabbos, which you're not allowed to do. And Romer is running alongside him, asking him questions in Torah. It's, just, it's an image that's hard to forget. The great Rabbi Meir, who's going to establish the Mishnah, and he's chasing Acher on the horse on Shabbos. And they're talking in Torah back and forth, and then Acher says, stop. Why? Halacha is that on Shabbos, you ha- you're, you're not allowed to go beyond the boundaries of the city more than 2,000 amos. Right? You're not allowed to walk past that. So Acher tells Rabbi I'm calculating in my head as I'm talking to you how many steps my animal's taking. And now I know that this is the Tchum Shabbos. This is the border of where you're allowed to walk on Shabbos. So you can't walk any further which gives you a little bit of insight into the intellect of Acher. He mentioned having a discussion with someone and keeping track of how far your car has moved along the throughway. That, that, you know, that's, that's what he did. At that time, Ramirez says, okay, repent, repent. He says, well, no, I already heard. I heard the voice. The voice was absolutely abundantly clear that I cannot repent. Everyone, can, everyone in the world can repent besides for Acher. The truth is that even Acher could have repented, but in his head, he was convinced he could not have. Indeed, even as Acher was dying, Rabbi Meir tried to get him to repent. He was sick. Rabbi Meir came to visit him on his deathbed. And he says, do tshuva now. Still not too late. Can you still do tshuva now? Until someone is dead, 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 they can repent. Acher is inspired. He starts crying. And he dies in a fit of tears. Says Rabbi Meir, he jumps for joy. I think, it appears to me, that my Rebbe, my teacher, died in Shuvah and repentance. And there's a whole debate afterwards what to do. Did he repent? Did he not repent? Ramirez convinced that he did repent and he's good. They buried Acher. And then a day later, they come and they see fire coming out of his grave, which doesn't, doesn't sound so good. And the Gemara is a very dramatic story. Rabbi Meir comes to the grave. He takes his garment, puts it on top of the fire. He starts praying. He makes a speech about this world, the next world, day and night. Very dramatic speech. And then he says like this. He says, if God will not redeem him, my teacher, I'm going to do it. And the Gemara ultimately concludes that they got evidence that Acher managed to receive atonement. But this gives a little bit of a window into Ramirez's life. You know, it's tragic. You know, the, 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 the conduit that gives you Torah becomes corrupted. Unimaginable. And yet, Ramirez was able to have the wherewithal to take the Torah and discard the problem and to become the great leader that he became and the, uh, you know, the, the, one of the biggest contributors to, to Torah. Now, he was surrounded with colorful personalities, not only 
with his relationship with his teacher, but with his relationship with his wife. Because his wife, Bruria, is one of the most interesting and enigmatic and feisty personalities in the Talmud. In fact, she is the only woman who is quoted, who halachic matters are quoted in her name. Mariam says, Rameer would give a lecture, and sometimes when Rameer was unable to finish a lecture, or for whatever reason, she was sitting in the bleachers with the women, in the women's session, she would pull up the curtain and finish the lecture for him. She was a woman of tremendous intellect. We know her father was Rebbechanim Atradion. And she had a, you know, she, she was the, you know, they call her the first feminist. You know, she really stood her ground. And, for example, there's a few stories that she has with Rebbe Meir and other scholars. Once Rebbe Meir was walking home and there was hooligans in his neighborhood. And they'd always bother him. They'd pester him. So what would Romero do? What would a rabbi of that time do? He says, I'll pray to get rid of these menaces and they'll die. And we know, we saw Rabbi Shimon. That what happened. Like, you know, these people had the power. They had, because they had the Torah, therefore nature was subject to them. If they wanted someone to die, it was not hard at all. So he starts praying and his wife stops him. So I have a better idea. Don't pray that the sinner gets destroyed. Pray that the sin gets destroyed. He says, you're right. He prays to have them repent from their sin. And indeed, that's what happens. They repent from the sin. Story number one. Another story. Rabbi Yosef Lili, one of the rabbis of that time, was once traveling along the way. And he met Bruria. So he tells her, which way do we go if we want to go to Lud, the city of Lud? She starts berating him. Galili, you Galilean man, you Shota, you're a fool. Why? Does not the teachers of the Talmud say, don't speak a lot with women? You should have said, not which way do we take to Lud. You should have just said, which to Lud. You added two words, and she's saying, you made a, problem, made a mistake with that. Another story, she once saw one of the rabbis studying Torah quietly. She says, man, she kicked him. I don't know if that's literal or figurative. She kicked him. He says, wait a minute, she quotes a verse. If you want Torah to have continuity, it has to envelop you, it has to overtake you. And therefore, she tells him, otherwise, if you just have Torah, it's in your head, it's in and out, it's in one ear, out the other, it doesn't really stay, doesn't, doesn't, really, uh, doesn't really have... Uh, perpetuation. She was a woman of remarkable composure and discipline with another very sad episode of their lives. We read in, in scripture of a woman of valor, strong woman. We read it as part of the Ashes Chayel. Who was the strong woman? Who, what's an example of this strong woman? Bruria. Bruria was an example of the strong woman. What happened? There was once, he was giving a lecture like he always did on Shabbos. And his two sons died, tragically. So what did she do? It's a very sad story here. So she puts the, puts the dead bodies on the bed. Ramirez in the synagogue giving a lecture. She covers them with a sheet. After Shabbos, Ramirez comes home. And he says to his wife, where are my two sons? And she says to, the, to her, well, they went, they went to study. 
He says, I, but I was in the house of scholarship and they weren't there. So she said, she gave him a cup, said, make Havdalah. He makes Havdalah. Where are my two sons? Why are you not answering me? She said, well, she went there, she went to other places. She's basically delaying. She gives him food. After he, after he eats, she says, okay, I have a question for you. What happens if someone gives you a deposit? And he comes a couple of days later and says, well, the thing that I put in your house for you to watch, I, I want it back. Should I give it back to him or not? He says, well, of course. If it's his item that he deposited by you, you have to give it back to him. So she says, well, if not for you, I wouldn't give it back to you. I agree with what you're saying, but only because you're saying it. If someone gives you a deposit and they want it back, you have to give it back. She takes him by the hand. She brings him up to the room. She brings him close to the bed. She removes the sheet and he sees his two dead sons. It's just so sad, you know, unimaginable, right? He starts crying. My sons, my son, my teachers, my teachers. They were my sons because they were actually my descendants. But they were my teachers because they were greater Torah scholars than me. Their sons, in his eyes, were greater Torah scholars than him. And you see like the, the, the cleverness and, and the craftiness of his wife to break the news to him in such a manner. Now, it would be improper for me not to tell you another story about her that's found in Rashi. It's not found in the ancient sources in the Talmud. It's found in Rashi. Rashi says that Beruria, she was a tremendously powerful woman. So she had a problem with one of the teachings of the Talmud. The Talmud teaches that doesn't matter for right now what the context is. This is Nashim Daitam Kalas, which means women are easily swayed. It's easier to convince a woman something than a man. She didn't like that. She's like, what do you mean? I'm a woman. I can teach Torah. She didn't like that. So Rabbi Meir says to to her, listen, this is Torah. Torah is true. If you don't agree with it, you're wrong. This is Torah. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? He has a plan here. So he hires one of his students. And he says, I want you to seduce my wife. The student starts to try to seduce her. And eventually, she capitulates. And her mayor says to her, you see, women are easily swayed. That's the Torah. And because you questioned it, that's why you had to be humiliated in this matter. She, according to Rashi, at least, she, she was taken aback and she committed suicide. That's according to, according to Rashi. And as a result of that, Ramir once again had to flee as well. Now, importantly, like Rashi is the, to my knowledge, Rashi is the only source that brings this story. Uh, and it's, again, adding more tragedy to Rabbi Meir's life uh, and creating more complexity with the characters that he's surrounding with himself with. I'm not going to say it didn't happen. If Rashi said it happened, it happened. I think maybe the lesson that we have to learn, well, at least one of the lessons for us is that Rabbi Meir and the people of his generation, they stood for one thing above all else, Torah. Torah is at risk, going extinct. Torah is from God. Our national mission and destiny is to preserve the Torah, to teach the Torah, to perpetuate the Torah. 
And no matter how great someone is and how scholarly someone is and how advanced someone is, they are not greater than Torah. They have to study from Torah. They have to not say, I'm going to impose what I believe on Torah. They have to have the reverse. And indeed, in a weird way, that's the lesson that we learn from that story. Now, there's some famous teachings I want to just share about Rabbi Meir that show a little bit of his, of the, of his, you know, world view. And maybe there's some lessons that we could take from ourselves. Now, if I had a whole list, we could be here till tomorrow. But just some very famous ones. For example, in several places in the Talmud, Rameer would say it like this. How do I prove to you that even a Gentile who studies Torah is like a high priest? Because it says, Asher otam adam when, when, when Torah, when someone fulfills Torah, they get life. It doesn't say, um, doesn't say a Jew. It says a man, a human, any human who studies Torah. It's like a, a high priest. And Talmud even adds that the, the verse tells us, Torah is more precious than pninim, which means pearls. But panimi also means internal, going in, like panim, internal, lifnim. And the Gemara understands it homiletically that Torah is more precious than someone who goes lifnayu lifnim into the Holy of Holies. Torah is able to connect someone to God in a way that's unparalleled by any other. Even someone who's not Jewish, you know, who, who really, Torah is not for them. Still, the power of Torah is able to transcend all of that. And that was one of the themes of, of all his teachings, of, or many of his, of his teachings. And we're told, for example, in the Mishnah, chapters of the fathers, whoever studies Torah, Lishma, with, with, Perfect intentions. And by the way, he had a history with someone who studied Torah with imperfect in- intentions, his Rebbe. Zochel Edvarim Harba merits many things. And Ramir gives a whole list of things that someone merits. You study Torah automatically, it catapults you to a higher realm of living. Another teaching that I think is very practical for us. Ramir says, Ma Hashem What does God ask of you? And what the word Ma or Ma? Is also sounds like maya, which means a hundred. What does the Almighty want of us? A hundred blessings a day. And in fact, there's a halacha based upon this teaching that we're supposed to do a hundred blessings a day. We're supposed to have a hundred touch points with God at a minimum in our lives every day. Rabbi Meir, towards the end of his life, he was he was in Turkey or in Asia or in Babylon, wherever he was, he had left Israel. When he died, as he's about to die, his last words were. I want you to bury me by the seashore, most likely in Turkey, that the waters that lap against my grave, they should be the same waters that also touch the land of Israel. He wanted to have a touch point with the land of Israel, even in death. In, in today's tradition, Vermeer is buried in Tiberias. So where he's actually buried, it's, it's a little bit of a problem because we have a tradition he's buried in Tiberias. And in fact, there's lots of people that, lots of tourists that go there, especially because Vermeer had all these powers was such a great leader. But the Talmud says that he was buried elsewhere. Who knows what's the story? But either way, it helps for the tur- tourism industry to, at least people assume, they don't know better, no one's digging it up to verify uh, that uh, that Rameir is buried in Tiberias. Rameir was one of the critical components of the transition team between, so to speak, the pre-Temple era 
where the high priesthood was intact, where the Sanhedrin was in force, where the temple was still extant, where the Jewish people were sort of settled in Israel, at least to a certain degree, to a certain modicum of stability, to the next generation, primarily that of Rabbi Judah the Prince, where they established Torah in a permanent fashion in the oral Torah, which is almost a a little bit of an insurance policy. The Jewish people came closer than ever at this point in time in history to losing Torah entirely. All the rabbis are killed, public Torah Torah teaching is banned. Rabbi Meir and his colleagues are the ones that kind of push us towards the finish line, towards at least the the next generation, Rabbi Judah the Prince, to give the lifeblood of the Jewish people Torah a chance of survival. Indeed, he is one of the contributors towards the oral Torah that Rabbi Judah the Prince is going to finalize and codify. I want to end with a statement of Rabbi Judah the, Rabbi Judah the Prince himself, what he said about Rabbi Meir. He was a student of Rabbi Meir, amongst other people. Amar Rabbi, the Gemara says in Erevin, Rabbi Judah the Prince says, Why am I so much more capable in Torah than my colleagues? That is, I saw Rabbi Meir in te- when he was teaching from behind him. Rabbi Meir would give a lecture, and the lecture room was so over- over- overflowing with students that there were students everywhere. So Rabbi Judah the Prince says, the reason why I'm such a great Torah scholar, because I sat behind him. Now, if had I sat in front of him and actually seen him, I would have been totally in a different realm. Remember, Rabbi Meir was the one who even his colleagues didn't understand him. He had such a tremendous grasp of Torah that just sitting behind him and connecting to his Torah enabled Rabbi Judah the Prince, the leader of the Jews in the following era, to become the great Torah scholar that he is. We'll hopefully next week learn about that fantastic personality and his contributions to the Jewish people.